0: Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. When the polar ice caps melt, sea level will rise. That's happened earlier in the history of the world, and it appears it will happen again. In this edition of Radio Curious, the first of a two-part series on global warming and sea level rise, we visit with Peter D. Ward a paleontologist and professor of biology and earth and space sciences at the University of Washington in Seattle. Ward is the author of The Flooded Earth, Our Future in a World Without Ice Caps, in which he describes expected conditions in the world in 2050, 2300, and 2500. This, the first interview with Professor Peter D. Ward, recorded on August 2nd, 2010, from his office in Seattle, Washington, begins with his description of what will happen when the waters rise.
1: Aspects. And one aspect is that humans and their habitation, and especially their farms, are inundated or otherwise made either uninhabitable or, in the case of farmland, it is no longer productive. The second is we have these mass migrations that are causing it. So the death comes from two things. A, starvation. If we cover over enormous areas of arable land, which are currently arable, and either get covered by the sea, or more commonly, the soil simply gets salt within it. I mean, you don't even have to cover an agricultural field with seawater to kill it.
0: In your book, The Flooded Earth, you talk about the saline contamination of the delta of the San Francisco Bay, the largest estuary on the western coast of North and South America. Using that as an example... Uh, the San Francisco Bay. Can you describe the salinization that's occurring now and the consequences of it?
1: Sure. The big problem is the San Joaquin Valley. Secondarily, it's the Sacramento Valley. Um, I used to live, I lived for eight years in the Sacramento Valley. I know it pretty well. And as we all know, there's an enormous quantity of money tied up in trying to keep those very, very rich farmlands from becoming salinized. Salinization takes place when salt Salt water moves laterally. It's not that the sea has to cover a field, but if we have a sea adjacent to a low-lying field, salt water can work its way horizontally. Even a few inches of sea level rise causes salt to move sideways enormous distances. If a rise is two inches, the salt doesn't just move two inches sideways; it moves hundreds of feet in most cases. The San Joaquin Valley has had problems with salt moving into its soil for a long time. Look, if we raise the level of the sea, the saltwater influx going up through the delta and all the way into the, the complex series of locks and, and byways that we now find between San Francisco and Sacramento, that salt moves sideways. Salidization of the San Joaquin Valley increases with every inch of sea level rise, and we are raising sea level now at an increasing
0: rate. So let's put that into the perspective of the fact that the size of the San Francisco Bay, the area of the water, has been reduced by one-third in the 160 years since the gold rush. As, has that aggravated the uh, salinization of the delta?
1: Well, we certainly have a a whole series of unnatural channels and levees and aspects of engineering, unbelievably complex. If you look at the map of what the engineering entities, and these have been both county as well as state as well as federal, have done to try to keep things at bay, it's it's sort of mind-numbing. But they built all this stuff without thinking about sea level rise. I mean, sea level rise was not part of the equation at all. It wasn't on anybody's plate when we built the complex series of water movement and and stopping water movement, essentially, that is part of the Great Delta Complex, and the San Joaquin Valley is intimately tied to that. Sea level rise is something that we will have to spend a huge amount of money for to try to keep the San Joaquin Valley as productive as it is now.
0: Well, then we need to talk about the cause of sea level rise and what we can do to retard it, if anything.
1: The cause of sea level rise is quite simple. Um, We are heating the atmosphere. Warm air is hitting places that were usually quite colder. And the two places we have to worry most about right now are Greenland and Antarctica. Those are the ground zero for sea level rise. Again, it's not the floating sea ice. We hear over and over and over that the Northwest Passage will open in the Arctic, or that this summer the Arctic will be open far longer, which it will. But floating pack ice, as we call it, when it melts, it doesn't affect sea level at all. It's that ice sitting on the land surface right next to it. When you see these beautiful pictures of calving glaciers, for instance, in Glacier Bay, we see glaciers moving down and falling into the ocean. Every bit of that ice, when it hits the ocean, it melts, and when it melts, it causes sea level to rise a tiny little bit.
0: Because the glacier is sitting on land.
1: Yeah, that's correct. The glacier is sitting on land, and when you drop that ice in, up it goes. You can do a simple experiment. Take a glass of hot water, drop in an ice cube, (laughs) splash, well, up goes the level of your drink because what has happened is you've added all that new water from somewhere. It melts. Up goes the level of the sea.
0: And the areas of Greenland and Antarctica are melting because of the general temperature rise and the CO2 rise?
1: The carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is going up. It is a greenhouse gas. It's like putting a blanket over it, causing the entire planet to warm up in its atmosphere. That is not surprisingly, causing ice that is currently sitting on huge areas of Greenland and then even way bigger areas of Antarctica to melt. And every drip of water coming off either of those two great ice sheets causes the sea to rise. We warm the planet, we melt ice. It's it's pretty intuitive. We are heading towards a period of carbon dioxide levels. We're at 390 parts per million and going up about two parts per million per year now, we're heading towards areas we haven't seen for the last 40 million years, and soon we'll be in situations, levels of carbon dioxide and global temperature, we haven't seen in 60 million years. We're heading to a time, to a level of carbon dioxide, that does not allow ice sheets. It's too warm to have them on the planet.
0: I'd like you to tell us how you know it's a 40 to 60 million years, but before we get to that, in this edition of Radio Curious, we're talking with Peter Ward, author of The Flooded Earth, Our Future in a World Without Icecaps. Peter, uh, how can you say that it's between 40 and 60 million years ago that the level of CO2 is what we are now approaching?
1: Well, one of the aspects of the debate, and global warming, of course, remains a debate, how does one know what carbon dioxide levels were in the deep past, and how does one know, if you know a certain level, what was the Earth like at that time? So what I bring to, at least to this particular debate, my particular specialty is, is understanding geology of deep time, and we have some really good chemical ways of modeling and getting very accurate, very accurate estimates of what ancient carbon dioxide levels were. And then secondly, we simply use the fossil record and geological records to see what sort of animals and plants were present. For instance, right now we have coral reefs. Only in a really narrow zone around the world, you have to fly a long way to get to a coral reef. Not in the deep past. Sometimes in the past, we've had coral reefs almost all the way to the Arctic Circle. We have, for instance, 60 million years ago, we know we had crocodiles far north of the Arctic Circle, all the way up through Greenland, we had tropical palm trees in my own state, in my own city of Seattle 60 million years ago. And 60 million years ago, from the rock record, we know what carbon dioxide levels were. They were somewhere around 1,000 parts per million. Never in the past have we had a planet where you could have an ice sheet, anything like Antarctica or Greenland, when you are between 800 and 1,000. And we are heading there again, at two per year. So we really are rapidly moving towards the state where the Earth never sustained ice sheets. And if we remove all the ice sheets, if we melt them all, the level of the ocean goes up over 200 feet. Now, there's a lot of ice in Antarctica. It's not going to melt right away. It's actually going to take thousands of years. But even with the rate of melting that would take thousands of years, we're going to start seeing first two and then four and then six and ultimately even more feet of sea-level rise per century. We could get up to 15 feet of sea-level rise per century if we go back and look at the past and the record we have from both the near and the deep past.
0: You give uh, concepts of sea-level rise in the next 10 to 40 years of somewhere between several feet to as many as uh, a dozen or so feet. Can you tell us the variables
1: well, that's not really true. I don't think I've ever said a dozen feet in 40 years. Give me by 2100. Those are the estimates. The reliable estimates are by 2100.
0: Peter Ward, the estimates that you feel are reliable between uh, now and the next 90 years of sea level rise, can you describe them to us and, and the basis for them?
1: Well, we can measure sea level rise now, and it's still in millimeters, and this really is the basis for a lot of the skeptical claims. How could you say that something is just in millimeters per year now is going to increase to the point that we could have as much as, for instance, I think the best-case scenario now is going to be 3 feet above what we have now by, say, 2100. But the worst-case scenario is as much as 6 feet, and a lot of people are settling for in between, between 3 and 6 So, we're looking maybe four feet, maybe five feet, maybe four and a half feet split the difference. But those are based on really new and solid modeling. Every year, the mathematicians and the people who take into account the many, many variables that deal with this it's not just the temperature or the rate at which we can see ice melting in Greenland and in Antarctica, but even the fact that the ocean is warming. And as it warms, things well. Heat causes ocean to expand. There's what we call a thermal expansion. So we have to add thermal expansion to what we know about the rate of ice melting in Antarctica and in Greenland. And three feet is a best-case scenario in most of the 2009 and 2010 predictions.
0: So what would that mean on a material plane in the San Francisco Bay, New Orleans, or the Bangladeshi Delta?
1: Boy, well there's there's a lot of ways to get at it. San Francisco, first of all, you can just kiss goodbye San Francisco International Airport. Every one of those runways is going to be not inundated three feet won't cover the runway, but three feet raises the threshold what we call storm surge. When the big storms come in, those runways will be covered by water. I mean you're gonna have water going over them, water hitting the infrastructure, and it's salt water. Um, In terms of farmland, this is the scariest aspect and the one that just for some reason never seems to get play. What does three feet of sea level do to global agriculture? Look, the richest agricultural fields in the world are in areas called deltas. California has its own nice delta, but the real true deltas, not that California isn't, but it's, the California Delta is a little strange. The real Delta is like the Mississippi. These are structures, geological structures, that have been built out into the ocean. The Mekong, uh, the Mississippi, the Brahmaputra, the Nile. These go on and on and on. You have these unbelievably rich, rich areas for agriculture. In Asia alone, the majority of rice is grown in low-lying, near-sea-level areas. These deltas become just enormous food banks for the world. So the problem is a a three feet of sea level rise geologically causes those deltas to disintegrate. Three feet of sea level rise creates enough higher storm action. Deltas are made up of the finest particles of sediment. They're not built of big rocks. And that's why they're so agriculturally intensive. Three feet of sea level rise, you remove deltas, you remove their food and all the nearshore food, at a time when world population is going to go from 6.5 billion to 9 billion or above. I mean That's the equation. We add perhaps a third more people and we reduce the amount of food that we're producing by some appreciable fraction, and some people are estimating 20%. That equation does not somehow balance to the betterment of humanity.
0: Well, we can imagine the consequences to our species once that occurs, and you're suggesting it could well occur within the next century.
1: Oh, indeed. I think we're going to see crises by 2060, I suspect we're going to find. 2060, 2070 is going to be just a nasty time. Sea level will have been up a foot, maybe a foot and a half. Salinization in places such as Bangladesh has already taken place. Look, Bangladesh currently feeds itself, but barely. It has over 110, 120 million people, but that number is going to go up by a third. At the same time, that creeping salt is going to render um, some proportion of their country, I believe 20 to 30 percent by the end of the century, unable to further grow crops. They have three crops per year now. They have a a three-crop rotation. That soil is used all the time. But what happens now when you no longer have enough food to feed your people, and worse than that for Bangladesh, the lowest-lying big country in the world, you no longer have the residential space to house everybody. Well, people start moving inland, and unfortunately, Bangladesh rests right up against India. And a lot of the projections are for, at least not this century, but certainly by next century, huge, huge problems of enormous populations rushing from one country to another, uh, we only need to look at our own southern border to see the vanguard of this.
0: In your book, The Flooded Earth, uh, you take us out into the future a number of years and describe what life would be like in the uh, Sacramento Valley. Uh, can you tell us about that and your your conceptions, your conjecture?
1: Well, I'm pretty worried about the Sacramento Valley, and, and let me tell you a quick story in 2002, I was asked to come to a meeting of the California Agricultural Group. This was the largest agricultural owners in California, and it was held in Napa in this fancy resort. So I said, sure, this is great. Live the high life for a little bit. And uh, at that time, I think one acre of Napa, great Napa wine-growing land, had just been sold for 200000 some some insane price. And I stood up, and these, these people who had bought it were congratulating themselves. Oh, boy, oh, boy, we're going to make a lot of money off this. And I said, you know, Napa Valley, I think 50, to a, 50 years to 100 years from now, will probably be growing sugar beets at best. I doubt you'll be growing wine at all because of climate change. And they almost, they did essentially boo me off the stage. I mean, it was, you know, get out of here. <laughs> How can you say that? Well, let's just jump inland a couple more valleys. And again, I lived in the Great Valley for eight years. It's pretty doggone hot there in the summer. We have that wonderful Sacramento River going through. And the nice thing now is that in the winter, we get snow in the Sierras, and that snow waits till the spring, and then it melts, and we can keep all that water in the Sacramento River. Well, what happens if it gets warm enough that we don't get snow in the winter? It rains. And that means our floods are not going to take place in the spring. By spring, there's probably going to be very little water in the Sacramento River, and we could really easily that with warmer temperatures and with any sort of projection of what future climate will be, Sacramento Valley and the San Joaquin Valley are, A, going to get a lot of salt, and, B, they're going to get really such long, hot summers that what you grow there now, you may not be able to grow there in the future. So it goes from a very productive agricultural green crop and green tree to a semi-arid desert. I work in one in South Africa right now. It's called the Karoo Desert and it can sustain sheep, and that's all. So I kind of think that's going to be the future, certainly by probably by the end of the century of, of the Sacramento Valley, unfortunately. Is, it is going to dry out, and it's going to become unsustainable for what we grow there now
0: in the flooded earth in your chapter on uh, feeding humanity amid rising sea level you create a story uh, 125 years in the future in the northern sacramento valley when world carbon dioxide levels are at 800 parts per million more than twice what they are now can you tell us a little bit about the feeling that you anticipate that would exist then
1: Sure, and again, a lot of this just as a geologist, uh, my travels have always been after fossils and rocks. But I've seen a lot of the world, and the place that I see most for that area again is either the South African Crude Desert or where I work these days, which is Western Australia. Um, Western Australia is a huge dry place. It's it's the size the state of Western Australia is the size of the Western U.S from, let's just say, the Rocky Mountains all the way west or more, and yet while we have a lot of tens of millions of people from Washington, Oregon, all the way down to California, there's only a million and a half people in all of Western Australia, and the reason is the water. Perth has a million of the million and a half people of Western Australia. So think of the entire Western U.S. with a million and a half people. And it is largely in Western Australia because there is no water. You can't sustain people out there. Well, that is what global warming will do to the American West. I mean, all the way back to John Wesley Powell, he recognized that the Western U.S. is unsustainable for a giant population of humans because of the water problems. And what we're seeing, again, when we no longer get snow in the mountains and instead we get the rainy uh, weather draining out in the winter without a snowpack, is no reserve of water. We're going to see a drying of the American West, and the California Great Valley is going to be hit really hard.
0: What will that do to the people who live in California then?
1: I don't think you are going to be able to support as many people in California in 100 years as you do now, or you're going to have some big fights over water. I mean, we're, we're already, as a federal entity, squabbling over the little water we have in the West, but our situation is way better than, I think, the most critical triangle of all is China, India, Pakistan. Because the same thing is happening there. and We just don't get really reliable news of the rest of the world. But the part of China that is in its western regions is in the longest, driest drought in recorded history. This has been going on for almost two decades now. And the big fight is going to be from the Himalayas water. India, Pakistan, and China are going to be vying for the rivers draining the Himalayas. And as global warming causes snow to go to ever higher elevation, once again, the reliability of water coming out of there becomes more problematic. They have enormous populations to feed. They need water to do it. And the big fights will be for that water. In California, there's going to be fights between California and Arizona and Oregon and Idaho. And there will probably be major engineering projects where the Columbia River, once again, will try to be tapped to be headed south. This this idea has been going on for a long time, but in Australia, they're already thinking about this. Southern Australia is in a huge drought. The northern tropics have a lot of water. They're now thinking of these enormous, enormous geoengineering where they're moving water from where you have it to areas where you don't.
0: And your feeling about those enormous projects is what?
1: Well, it's going to take... To do an enormous project, you have to produce energy on a vast scale, and up goes more and more and more carbon dioxide. Um, the the big worry now is that China, as, as recently as a couple years ago, between 1 and 101, and about 75 Chinese owned a private car. It's better in India. I don't know, maybe that's not better, maybe it's worse. Whereas in the U.S., we have... Uh, more cars than citizens in the U.S., I found out. That's interesting. But it's not so much – everybody says auto, auto exhaust is the big emission pollute, pollutant. It's not. It's, it's not so much running the cars. as building the cars. It takes huge amounts of energy to smelt steel, enormous amounts of energy to mine steel. It is the power plants, the power plants that are driving global warming. If we look at the U.S., how many of our power plants are coal? Well, it's just like the rest of the world. Coal is the cheapest energy on the planet. We're already seeing that, as of this morning, when uh, I was just looking at it, 75 to $80 per barrel for oil, and yet coal remains cheap because there are hundreds of years of coal reserves that we could get easily. So coal becomes, in a marketplace economy, the cheapest and the best way to, to power your power plants, to make the cars, which the Chinese want as much as we do. That's the challenge. The challenge is too many people.
0: Well, Peter Ward, author of The Flooded Earth, Our Future in a World Without Ice Caps*, I want to thank you for being with us on this part one of a two-part series on global warming. And before we close, I'd like to ask you the usual questions, which are, can you tell us about an aha or eureka moment related to what we're talking about or some other aspect of your life?
1: Well, it wasn't a eureka moment, but I've been twice to Antarctica. And once I lived in a tent two years ago, we were in very primitive conditions, six of us, for over a month in the very cold. And yet, cold as it was, the permafrost on which we were camping over the time of our month there had been melting, anomalously melting. It was at a time when it should have been getting colder, and instead it was so warm that we ended up living in a swamp. So it was a very miserable experience. And the moment came when I went to one of the Antarctic bases and they had photographs of our area uh, and the other parts of the Antarctic Peninsula where we were. And they showed the retreat of the glaciers. And look, if the glaciers are retreating in Antarctica, well, what are they doing in the more temperate regions? We all hear about glacier retreat in Glacier National Park. But when I saw that Antarctica is melting so quickly, that was a very scary moment.
0: And what would you like to do with the rest of your once precious life?
1: Um, I've, I guess I'm going to be chicken little and run around with a sign. It's not the sky is falling, it's that the sky is rising. It's The CO2 that's rising, and we've got to stop it.
0: And can you tell us of an interesting book that you would recommend?
1: Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth still, I think, really sets the ground truth of what we have to do and why we have to do it call to arms.
0: Well, Peter Ward, author of The Flooded Earth: Our Future in a World Without Ice Caps. Thank you very much for being with us on part 1 of our conversation about global warming. Thanks for having me. Peter D. Ward is a paleontologist and professor of biology and earth and space sciences at the University of Washington in Seattle. He's the author of The Flooded Earth Our Future in a World Without Ice Caps. The book that he recommends is An Inconvenient Truth by Al Gore. Over 400 Radio Curious programs may be found on our website, radiocurious.org. They're free as my gift to you. I hope you enjoy them. Our address is 280 North Oak Street, Ukiah, U-K-I-A-H, California, 95482. The phone is 707-462-6541 and email is curious at radiocurious.org. Christina Honested is our assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.